Welcome to the podcast of Vertical Life Church. We hope and pray these messages encourage and challenge you to find your glorious purpose in Christ Jesus. For more information, visit us on the web at www.vlchurch.tv. Amen. How are we doing? Good? Awesome. I'm so thankful to be with you today and Something that's been on my heart this week that I was praying about was the temperature, and God answers prayer. We found the button that turns on the air conditioning unit. Amen? Amen. And, and so I appreciate Cody getting that set up for us. Such an awesome thing in our time of worship, just the presence of the Lord. I uh, just, you know, you, you work and you work and you work, and then when you get here, it's like God shows up, and you're like, oh, peace again. I, amen. So it's awesome. We are excited to be back with you. We are in uh, our series. We're calling the Great Romance in uh, the book of Numbers. Towards the end, we've been kind of dissecting the Feast of Israel, seven Feasts of Israel. And uh, we are beginning to transition now away from the spring into the fall. So they have seven feasts total. The first four feasts happen in the spring. The last three help uh, happen in the fall. And what's amazing as we've been discovering how these stories also reveal prophetic uh, meaning. They have prophetic meaning that apply to not only what Jesus would do when he came, but what he's going to accomplish when he returns, even futuristic things that we have to look forward to as we await that blessed hope of Jesus coming back. Are you excited for Jesus to come back? Yes. You know, I won't have to watch my carbs anymore. I'm so excited about that. You know, but uh, so the spring, if you think about spring, what happens in the spring? Right, we're coming out of the winter where everything dies. And so now new life is beginning to spring up. And it just so happens that these fall feasts in the spring represent the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The time where he ushered new life into the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will have everlasting Life, right? So these spring feasts represent Jesus coming to institute life. But now we're transitioning into the fall. What happens in the fall? Everything living begins to die. Begins to peter out in preparation for the winter. And this is where the first feast, the first feast of fall, the feast of trumpets, or what the Jews call Rosh Hashanah, comes in and we're actually going to be in Leviticus today the parallel passage is in numbers but we get a little more information in Leviticus chapter 23 so the verses will be on the screen as well as you can um, uh, follow along in the YouVersion Bible app we have the notes there so if you have that app on your phone uh, that's a really handy tool but in Leviticus chapter 23 here is what the Word of God says in regards to the command of Moses on this feast it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel. In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed. Somebody say memorial. So here's the purpose of this feast. It's a memorial proclaimed with the blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. You shall present a food offering to the Lord. So just as with the other feasts, they had offerings and sacrifices they had to 
uh, offer, but each one had something else that was unique. In this one, they had to blow the trumpets. And it, it's interesting, in the original language, the word trumpet is not there. It basically just says a memorial of blowing. And so they infer that a trumpet is to be connected to that. So this is a feast of blowing or of sounding the trumpet, and it's to be a memorial. What are memorials? There are moments where you remember something. So if we think about the nation of Israel and all they went through, what would they need to remember regarding trumpets that, that maybe would hint on what this feast was to symbolize. Well, if you think about the, the exodus and all of the events surrounding their departure of Egypt, there is really only one event that includes a trumpet that they would go back to to remember. And that is found in Exodus 19, verses 16 and 17, when God descended on the mountain. Here's what the scripture says. It says, On the morning of the third day, thunder roared, lightning flashed, and a dense cloud came down on the mountain, and there was a long, loud blast from a ram's horn, from a trumpet, and all the people trembled. Moses led them out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. So here we have this, this pinnacle moment in Israel's history, and God says this feast is going to be a memorial. And so because there was the sound of a ram's horn or a shofar or a trumpet, uh, then we would often think, well, that must be what this is symbolizing. But if you continue to read in the scripture and you read God's uh, commandments to the Israelites in regards to how they were to sound trumpets, you will see something a little differently. In Numbers chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, God commands Israel not just to blow any old trumpet, but to actually craft a special kind of trumpet. In Numbers chapter 10, verse 9, he says, When you arrive in your own land and go to war against the enemies who attack you, sound the alarm with trumpets. Somebody say trumpets. Sound the alarm with trumpets. Then the Lord your God will remember you and rescue you from your enemies. Blow the, what's that say? Blow the trumpets. In the times of gladness, too, sounding them at your annual festivals in the beginning of each month. And blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and your peace offerings. The trumpets will remind your God of his covenant with you. For I am the Lord, your God. Now, when God descended on the mountain, the word for trumpet was shofar. Shofar was a ram's horn, literally a horn off the animal that they would use for a trumpet. They would sound it. They would, they would use it to, uh, um, for many different purposes. But here, God is specifically telling Israel that there are these trumpets. And notice it doesn't say ram's horn. There's something else that God has commanded them to use. If it was a ram's horn, the word shofar would be in play here, but it's not listed here. There is a different kind of trumpet that are to be used. God commanded Israel to blow these trumpets, which were made out of silver. He commanded them to craft two silver trumpets, and these trumpets were the special trumpets that only the priests could use in order to make certain announcements. And these trumpets are the ones that you are to blow with gladness at the times of festival, over the offerings. These trumpets were used in connection to the feast. 
So the Feast of Trumpets was a memorial to the Lord. But if you think about what we just read in Numbers, it wasn't a memorial for Israel. What does Numbers 10, 9 and 10 say? It says, when you blow the trumpets, the Lord your God will remember to rescue you. And when you blow them again over your festivals, the Lord your God will remember his covenant with you. The Feast of Trumpets in the fall feast was not a time for Israel to remember God. It was a time for God to remember Israel. This is important for us to understand how this applies into the coming of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, these two silver trumpets, only the priests could blow them, not just anyone, but the priests. They would blow over the sacrifices, blow for the alarm of incoming enemies, and at festivals and times of gladness. There were two ways they're instructed to use these trumpets. If you read about the silver trumpets, there's two ways to use them. One is to mobilize the people in the camp. Remember, when they followed the tabernacle, God's presence would lead them through the wilderness. They, they'd stay at camp as long as the pillar of cloud was over the tabernacle. As soon as that pillar of cloud moved, they would know, okay, it's time to go. God's not sticking around. We're going with God. So we're just going gonna to follow him. So in order for them to move and move the way God instructed them, he said, sound the trumpet. When the first trumpet sounds, the camp on the east, the camps on the east, they'll get up and go. When the second trumpet sounds, the camp the, on the south will go. And you'll know it's time to move when you hear the short blasts of the trumpet. So there's a way they were to blow the trumpet and the, the um, process in which they were to blow the trumpet. But then the second purpose for these silver trumpets was used for gathering. If God wanted to meet with the people, he would announce blast the trumpet, but use a long blast. And if they only sounded the first trumpet, then it was a signal to the leaders of Israel to gather around the tabernacle. When the second trumpet was sounded, it was a signal for all of the people to come around the tabernacle to meet with God. So you had these specific purposes for these silver trumpets. Now, the shofar is not the same. There's some key uh, indicators when you look at the difference between the silver trumpets and the shofar the shofar again was used many different times many ways and could be used by anyone if you look at joshua in the battle of jericho as they're marching around the city at, at the right time it says god says give the shout and they blowed the trumpet that's the shofar and many people had them they would carry them with them uh, the military would carry them at the times of war to sound the battle cries, and they would use them for many different purposes. But these silver trumpets were special and could only be used by the priest. The, the word in uh, Hebrew for these silver trumpets is translated in English as a clarion or clarion. Have you heard that phrase, the clarion call? It's an older phrase that, that's uh, used for, for different things, but the clarion call means a strongly expressed demand or request for action. So these silver trumpets weren't just to be used at random. They were specific. They were meant to be instructive both to God and to man. They told man what to do, but they reminded God of his promises. Now, in modern day, the Jewish people, they still celebrate the Feast of Trumpets or Rosh Hashanah, 
but they don't celebrate it according to the biblical instruction. Matter of fact, many Jews today don't even read the Old Testament. It's called what's commonly called rabbinic Judaism. They have a bunch of rabbis who have written works based on what they think the Bible meant, and most Jews today read the rabbinical teachings. They don't even read the original scriptures. That's why when you read them texts like Isaiah 53 that talk about the death of the Messiah, they have no idea what to do with it. And they revert back to what my rabbi said. So it's very common. In the Israel's history, when the Babylonians came in and destroyed the temple, they also took all of these special things in the temple, all of the instruments for worship and prayer and praise. They even took the silver trumpets. And so they no longer had these silver trumpets. So what did they do? Did they make new ones? No. They just began to use the shofar, a military instrument to celebrate this feast. So if you think about what they're doing, every time they, they celebrate their new year, they're blowing the alarm with the shofar, but they're not calling God to remember his covenant. This is important because their perception of what Rosh Hashanah meant, it, going all the way back to the biblical days, Rosh Hashanah, or the Feast of Trumpets, was a day of preparation. It was a day to give petitionary prayers that would call on God because they knew a day of judgment was coming, and they believed during the Feast of Trumpets, God would open the books and prepare to judge them. And we can see this in Daniel chapter 7, verse 10, as in Daniel's vision, says a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. Thousands and thousands served him. Ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were open. This is Daniel's vision of heaven. And what is happening here is Daniel sees God on the throne and the heavenly court, his, his heavenly council around him. The books are open and he's getting ready to judge. And right after he sees this, he also sees the Son of Man. He sees the first depiction in time that phrase is used, the depiction of Jesus before he was born to the Virgin Mary. So we have the opening of the books and then we have a revelation of the Son of Man connected to a time of judgment. This festival is also referred to as the Festival of Twin Trumpets, or Yom Teruah, or Teruah, even though they don't use the silver trumpets today. And these two feasts differ decidedly from the other feasts because they're not centered on man's agricultural offerings. Remember, the spring offerings were around the, the first fruits and the harvest. These feasts were not centered around the agriculture. The collective focus of the fall feasts Specifically, this one was on men preparing themselves and on the Almighty's determinations or process concerning their preparedness. If they didn't repent during the Feast of Trumpets in preparation for the Day of Atonement, they believed that when the Day of Atonement came, if you weren't right with God, you would go on the next year cursed and probably lose your life. So this feast was a time of repentance, a time of introspection for self-examination to make peace with God and with their brethren, that their hearts would be made right before God, before the Day of Atonement, which would be 10 days later. So again, this, this feast is not just a time of blowing trumpets. It's a time to call the people of God as the books to judge are being opened to a time to calling us to repentance. And it's interesting that before God descended on Mount Sinai, if you go back to Acts 19, 
Before he descended on Mount Sinai and that trumpet blast announced his arrival, three days prior, God told Moses, have the people consecrate themselves, purify themselves before they could meet with God. So we see this as a, as a type or we see this as a, um, a picture all throughout Scripture of how God prepares to arrive and prepares his people. So knowing what the Feast of Trumpet means and symbolizes and how they would uh, prepare or uh, honor this feast, we would need to then transition to look at what the prophetic fulfillment is because we know all these feasts pertain to Jesus. Jesus fulfilled the first feast at his first coming. He's going to fulfill these last three feasts at his second coming. So is there a time when you're reading Scripture, is there a time in the future Surrounding the second coming of Jesus a time where God is going to call the world to repentance And yes, there is and this specific time in the last days goes by many names that Daniel 12 1 through 4 Matthew 24 20 through 21. It's called a time of anguish in Revelation 310 it's called a time of testing in Jeremiah 30 verse 7. It's the time of Jacob's trouble in Matthew 24, 21 through 29, it's the great tribulation. And that's a common term we often hear about, the great tribulation, a time that is coming upon the earth. And Jesus, in his teaching in Matthew 24, he reveals that this time, this great tribulation, is going to uh, be heralded in, it's going to come, and there would be signs in both the earth and in the sky. There would be these great signs that take place all over the earth, and uh, we've seen many movies that depict these things. Anybody watch Left Behind or read the books? You know, the first time I went to college, I was really interested in these things because I was working with a, uh, a guy at uh, this Christian bookstore that I, was, um, that I was at in college, and he and I had different views of how it all works out in the end. I didn't know if you knew this, but Christians disagree from time to time on what the Bible says. I didn't know if you knew that. But so we had a different viewpoint, and the, the thing that bothered me is he was— telling me all these things I'd never heard before. And so I was like, I need to figure out what I believe and why I believe it. And so I took a class called eschatology. That's a big word that really means the end, end times end or prophetic study. And so in my eschatology class, I was so gung-ho. I was like, okay, I just spent $300 to take this class. I'm going to learn something. And my teacher, for the first half of the semester, showed us left behind one and two. And I'm like, I could have rented this for $3.99 and, and did this on my own. But uh, there was some value in the class. But a lot of what we believe about end times comes from the movies. It comes from what we read or what we hear other people say. And we don't often just dig into the scripture to see what the Bible says. And that, that began a, a big journey of discovery for me. But in the last days, what we do know from the Bible in Matthew 24, Jesus says there'll be these signs. There'll be wars. There'll be pestilence, pandemics. Does that sound familiar? Uh, there'll be earthquakes and natural disasters on the rise like birth pains. The closer a woman gets to delivering, the harder and faster the contractions come. Jesus said this is what it's going to be like in the end, before his coming. These, these pains, these birth pains, these signs are going to come on the earth. He also quotes Joel in Joel chapter 2, as well as Peter in Acts 2 quotes from Joel. He says, in the last days, the sky will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And I've always wondered about this, like, how is that going to work? Is God just going to, like, take a magic eraser and just, you know, rub it out of the sky? How's, how's he going to do it? 
But I want to I read something to you. This is an article from Forbes magazine about what's actually taking place right now in our world that might give us some insight onto how the sky might be darkened and the moon not give its light. Microsoft founder Bill Gates, according to Forbes magazine, is financially backing the development of sun-dimming technology that would potentially reflect sunlight out of the Earth's atmosphere, triggering a global cooling effect. The stratospheric controlled um, perturbation experiment, or SCOPEX, launched by Harvard University scientists, aims to examine this solution by spraying non-toxic calcium carbonate, or CaCO3, dust into the atmosphere, a sun-reflecting aerosol that may offset the effects of global warming. Widespread research into the efficacy of solar geoengineering has been stalled for years due to controversy, and opponents believe such science comes with unpredictable risks, including extreme shifts in weather patterns not dissimilar to warning trends we are already witnessing. Now, does the sun get darkened and the moon blotted out because the divine hand of God miraculously does it like the Red Sea? Most likely. But it's also possible that man in its arrogance trying to be God and control the weather, which only God can do, God allows us to reap the consequences of our own stupidity. And the technology for that is being developed right now in the name of global warming. We're in a very unusual time, to say the least. During this period, the Great Tribulation, God does pour out judgment, and he uses seven trumpets to pour out his judgment. You can read this in the book of Revelation. The first trumpet, there's hail mixed with blood that's released on the earth. Then the second trumpet, a great mountain of fire or, or volcano erupts. The third trumpet, a star from heaven falls and makes a third of the water poison. The third of the sun, the fourth trumpet, a third of the sun, moon, and stars are struck with darkness. The fifth trumpet, the bottomless pit or the abyss is opened, and, and these beings from the nether realm are released, and, and smoke is released into the air. The sixth trumpet, four angels under the Euphrates are loosed, and a third of mankind is killed. In the seventh trumpet, heaven and the temple of God is opened, and angels with seven additional bowls of judgment are released to begin to pour out judgment on the earth. The sounding of the trumpets in the book of Revelation release judgment on the earth during this time of great tribulation. But it's not just to judge mankind. It's for a specific purpose. And we can see this purpose in Revelation chapter 9, 20 through 21. Here's what it says. It says, the people who did not die in these plagues, what's that say? It says they still refuse to repent. They, the ones that survived did not repent of their evil deeds and turn to God. They continued to worship demons and idols made of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that can neither see nor hear or walk. They did not repent of their murders or their witchcraft or their sexual immorality or their thefts. So just like the Feast of Trumpets is a time to call men to repentance, to examine your own heart because the coming judgment is, is ensuing, it's on its way, the Great Tribulation is a time to call the world to repentance, to, to say, the Lord is coming. He is on its way. The time and the season is now 
prepare yourself for the coming day of the Lord. Because unlike his first coming, where he came to lead all to everlasting life, at his second coming, he's bringing judgment in his wings. He's coming to judge the earth. So we have the signs. We have the seasons. We also have a prophetic revelation of the Feast of Trumpets. The question is, do we know when this time will actually begin? Many ask that question. They ask in the time of the Bible days, when is this going to begin? His disciples ask Jesus, when, what's the sign of your coming? When are you coming back? In Daniel 9, 26 and 27, Matthew 24, 15, Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12, all give us the starting point of when this period of time will actually begin, and that's at the revelation of the one who is called the Antichrist. When the covenant is made and he is revealed, that is when this tribulation period begins to unfold. So if we understand the beginning of the tribulation period, a question I have is when is the end? When, when can we look to Christ coming back, and what do we need to be doing to, to uh, usher in our king when he comes back? If you remember last week talking about the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Pentecost was about releasing the kingdom on the earth. The, the, the tongues were poured out. The many were saved to go back into the nations to proclaim the gospel, to call all who would to come to Jesus Christ. It's a uh, time to reclaim the earth for the King of kings and the Lord of lords, turning over the power of darkness and setting free those who would trust in Jesus. So we are currently in the period of time between Pentecost and the Feast of Trumpets. I don't believe Trumpets has begun yet. So no one really knows when trumpets begins because we're waiting for these specific signs, just like we don't know the day or the hour of Christ's return. There is a fixed point when the Feast of Trumpets will end and Jesus Christ will return. And there's something that, that we can be partnering with God on right now in our time to help speed up this process. In Romans 11, chapter 25, Paul says something to the Romans that it's easy to skip over if we don't like, dig into what he's saying. In Romans 11.25, he says, I want you to understand this mystery. He says, I want you to get what I'm about to say to you, beloved. Brothers and sisters, I want you to understand this mystery so that you will not feel proud about yourselves. You'll not become arrogant. He says, some of the people of Israel have hard hearts. He's, what he's doing is he's talking to these Gentile believers because they have Christ, they have the Holy Spirit, and he's looking at the way God has kind of taken his hand off Israel. And many of them ha have taken on this, this belief. It's a, it's a biblical error that's called um, um, replacement theology, where people believe the church has replaced Israel's role in the world. So that's, that's an error. I don't believe that at all. But he's saying, I want you to understand this mystery. Just because you have the Spirit and you have this relationship with God doesn't mean God is done with Israel or has somehow thrown them away. Here's what he says. He says, some of the people of Israel have hard hearts, but this will only last until what? Until the full number of the Gentiles come to Christ. There is a fixed number of non-Jews who are going to be saved. God knows the number, and God knows when they're going to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And so here's what he's saying. He's saying, when this full number of Gentiles comes to Christ, he says, then what? All Israel will be saved. There's going to be a reclamation of the nation of Israel as a people, and together with the nation of Israel and the saved Gentiles, we become the people of God. 
This is God, what God is doing. It says, as the scriptures say, the one who rescues will come from Jerusalem. He will turn Israel away from ungodliness. And this is my covenant with them. I will take away their sins. This comes from Isaiah 59, 20, 21. It says, remember, or the Redeemer will come to Jerusalem to buy back those in Israel who have turned away from their sins, says the Lord. And this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit will not leave them, and neither will these words I've given you. They will be on your lips and on the lips of your children and your children's children forever. I, the Lord, have spoken. No, beloved, God has not rejected Israel. He has appointed a time for their redemption. And after the last Gentile comes to Christ, the last non-Jew comes to Christ, God's focus is then going to turn on Israel. And this is what we read in the book of Revelation. This is why the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Israel is targeted by the kingdoms of this world because God has re-centered his focus on his people. Remember, God chose Israel as his portion, and it's through Israel that he blesses the nations through the coming of the Messiah. So the focus right now in this season, we're focused as the church on harvesting Gentiles, of going into all the world, preaching the gospel, making disciples of the Lord, calling people from every nation, tribe, and tongue to be joined to the Lord through trusting in Jesus Christ. And this really is true spiritual Israel, the seed of Abraham, not the church, but those who place their faith in Christ, Jew and Gentile alike. That's the focus right now. But after the last Gentile is saved, God makes the move to refocus on Israel, to open the eyes of Israel that all who are living will come to know the truth about Jesus. So here's what we have promised from God. When the last Gentile is saved, Jesus is going to return. He's going to return. Which means we got work to do. We're not just here saying, oh, I'm a Christian now. Ooh, I'm in. Woo, I got the card. I get the bonus points. I get the miles, you know, because of the little things I do. No, we have a mission. There are people that still need to hear, and when the last one hears, the trumpet's going to sound. He's going to come. In Zechariah 12, 8 through 12, we get this, the, this picture of this moment when the last Gentile is saved, what God begins to do during this feast of trumpets, the prophetic fulfillment of trumpets. It says, On that day, the Lord will defend the people of Jerusalem. The weakest among them will be as mighty as King David, and the royal descendants will be like God, like the angel of the Lord who goes before them. For the, that day I will begin to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. When all the nations gather again around the nation of Israel, God is going to defend them. And then he says, And I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the family of David and on the people of Jerusalem. They will look on me, whom they have pierced, and mourn for him as for an only son. They will grieve bitterly for him as the firstborn son who has died. And the sorrow and mourning in Jerusalem on that day will be like the great mourning for Hadad Ramon in the valley of Megiddo. And all Israel will mourn, each clan by itself, with the husbands separate from their wives. The clan of David will mourn alone, as will the clan of Nathan. In chapter 13, 1 and 2, it says, On that day, a fountain will be opened for the dynasty of David, for the people of Jerusalem, a fountain to cleanse them from all their sins and impurity. 
And on that day, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will erase idol worship throughout the land so that not even the names of the idols will be forgotten. I will remove, uh, or remembered, I will remove from the land of the false prophets, I will remove the spirit of impurity that came with them. What God is saying is that when the fullness of Gentiles has come and he turns his sights on Israel, then he is going to return. And what's going to happen is the nation of Israel is going to see Jesus. And they're not going to just see a man who died and rose again. They're going to recognize that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, God forevermore. And they're going to mourn as a nation. Here, we as the Gentiles, the Bible says we are provoking them to jealousy because of our relationship with God, what, what we get to experience as we walk in the Spirit, the laying on of hands, seeing healing, and, and words of prophecy, and all the things that God is doing through the Gentile nations because of our faith in Christ. That's to provoke them to jealousy. But one day, when, when the last Gentile is saved, God's going to turn again to Israel. They're going to see their king, and they're going to look at this man who they've rejected for thousands of years. And they're going to mourn. And they're going to say, what did I miss out on? That I fought and persecuted against my king. Doesn't your heart break for these people? They had so much, but yet they had nothing because they rejected the one the whole story is about. But in God's grace and mercy, there's a day when he's going to Redeem them, and not only will he redeem them, he's going to erase not just the idols, but also the false prophets and every demonic spirit that's led them into uh, deception and wickedness. He's going to erase them from the land. He's going to overthrow the kingdom of darkness so that not even their memory is remembered. I think that's awesome. That they're not even remember the names of these gods. As we've seen in this study, Jesus came much to redeem sinners the first time he came to overthrow the power of the enemy. Even the corruption unleashed in Eden in Genesis 6 with the fallen angels and at the Tower of Babel. Much of what he did while he was here, while he was alive, was to demonstrate the kingdom of God had come and we're invited into the kingdom. But here in Zechariah 12, it says something when Jesus returns, it says something that, that just jumps out at you. Uh, it says, the people of Israel see him, not just a man, but as the true and living God. In chapter 12, verse 11, it says that the people of Israel mourn just like others mourn this guy named Hadad Ramon in the valley of Megiddo. So they mourn, and it's significant that it lists, the Bible doesn't just put random facts in there. These things are significant. In Zechariah 12, the sorrow and mourning that they experience is like uh, that of those who mourn Hadad Ramon in the Valley of Megiddo. Hadad Ramon was a Mesopotamian deity who was considered to be the source and power of Babylon. The nation that began the whole, the whole rebellion at the Tower of Babel. That's where God separated the languages. He separated people into people groups, turned the earth over to the princes and paladins and rulers of the unseen world. Hadad Ramon was the power behind this nation that is the spiritual power behind all the wickedness that we see all throughout Scripture. 
He's also connected with gods of Baal, Molech, and Ashtoreth that we see over and again as the enemy gods who fight against Yahweh in the Bible, raising up these people to come against Israel time and time again. And here he's saying they're going to mourn like the people who mourned Hadad-Ramon in the valley of Megiddo. What's also interesting is Megiddo is a very famous place. It's referred to by another name in, in Revelation 16, 16, at a specific time when the nations of the earth are gathered around Israel to destroy it. In Revelation 16, 16, it says, And the demonic spirits gathered all the rulers and their armies to a place with the Hebrew name, what's that name? Armageddon. So we've heard about the battle of Armageddon, the final battle that, that against the, the devil, his, his minions, and God, and the king of kings as Jesus comes to return. So they gathered them up in the valley or this place that's called Armageddon. They led these armies to this valley for what is commonly the battle of Armageddon. When Jesus comes down with a word, a sword comes from his mouth, and with a word he destroys all of his enemies. This is going to be a great day. So the power behind these kingdoms, these rulers, is destroyed. If you flip a couple chapters over to chapter 18 in the book of Revelation, you see after this moment, the people of the world are mourning the fall of Babylon. Babylon is on fire. And the people of the world are mourning its influence, mourning the destruction of Babylon. This is what's being revealed here when the Jesus returns. So the question that I ask when, when I look at this is, what's being revealed here? What in the last days is happening? Why are the powers of Babylon able to mobilize the kingdoms of the world? Why is there a false prophet and an antichrist raised up to rebel against the people of God, even giving power over the people of God to oppress them and persecute them? It's because the enemy knows there's a fixed day for the fullness of the Gentiles to come in. And when the fullness of the Gentiles come in, they know it's only minutes before the trumpet sounds and Jesus returns. And so this is his last-ditch effort. As we enter the time of the Feast of Trumpets in the last days, this is his last-ditch effort to gain power and control over the world, to try to overthrow the kingdom of Israel, set their own throne up on the land of Israel and in Jerusalem so they could become the gods of this earth. But what they discover when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, there is only one God in heaven. And Jesus is his name. And Jesus comes to reign on David's throne. Now, many of us have heard about a, an event in the Bible many call the rapture of the church. Anybody heard of the rapture? You know what I'm talking about? So it's, it's a word that's actually not found in Scripture. It's based off the uh, Latin translation. But there's a time when the church is caught up to meet Jesus. And there are many different viewpoints uh, on when this happens, a, a common viewpoint is called the pre-tribulational rapture, which means that event takes place before the Feast of Trumpets or the, the Great Tribulation on the earth. That's actually not in the book of Revelation. We don't see that at all. And uh, many scholars tried to kind of fit it in there by, by doing some what I call biblical trickery to try to like throw, throw it in there. But uh, it's actually not in there uh, at all. Uh, the scriptures point to the second coming of Christ. But to understand really what is going on with the rapture, we just need to go back and remember the mystery 
of the Feast of Trumpets and the two silver trumpets that are used in this feast. Just as there are two calls to gather the tribes in Numbers chapter 10, there are two calls that go out in the last day at the time of Christ's return. There's a call to mobilize the camp, and there's a call to gather the people. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, it's a common verse on this subject. Here's what Paul says to the church at Thessalonica. He says, The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the what? The trumpet call of God. So there's a trumpet on the time Christ is returning. It says, First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves, and then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on earth, will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we'll be with the Lord forever. So this verse has always, like, struck me kind of funny, and kind of the reason why I'm nervous to be an organ donor. Because if the graves of the righteous break open and our bodies go up to heaven, what if you've given an organ to somebody who's still alive and you've died? I mean, I mean, have you, have you thought about that? I mean, sometimes things are funny. Um, might not be funny for them unless they know Jesus. Then they'd be all good. So, you know, if you're going to receive an organ from somebody, please trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Saves you, saves you the hassle. But this moment happens. The trumpet sounds. The church, dead and alive, are resurrected and meet Jesus in the air. Jesus comes down with a shout. Do you remember how God came down on Mount Sinai? He came down with the sound of the trumpet. It announced he was coming. So Jesus comes down with the trumpet call just as God came down on Mount Sinai. In Matthew 24, 31, Jesus says when he comes, he's going to, with the archangels, the angels, and the trumpet sound, he's going to mobilize his angelic army. He's going to send them to the four corners of the earth, and he's going to gather his elect from the four winds and the four corners of the earth. So there is the trumpet call of God that not only announces his coming, but mobilizes the angelic army. In 1 Corinthians 15, 52, Paul, talking about the same moment, he says it will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the what? When the, not just the trumpet, the last trumpet. If there's a last, isn't there a first? Right? If there's a sequential order, then you have to, uh, presuppose there's one before so what we're seeing in scriptures there is a trumpet when jesus returns but there's another trumpet just as there were two silver trumpets one to call the leaders the second to call the congregation now we have the trumpet to mobilize the angels and we have the second or the last to mobilize the people of god to meet jesus in the air at his second coming so what happens in the Feast of Trumpets, the fulfillment of the Feast of Trumpets, is at the end when Christ is about to return, when the nation of Israel, the reason why they mourn is not just because they see Jesus. It's because they realize the fulfillment of Matthew chapter 8, verse 11, when Jesus was here talking to the Pharisees about the kingdom of God. Here's what Jesus says. He says, I tell you this. That many Gentiles will come from all over the world. From where? From east and west. And sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the feast in the kingdom of heaven. They mourn because it's not Israel in the clouds with God. It is people from every nation, tribe, and tongue coming on the clouds of heaven. 
and they wake up to the realization of their situation. Thank God he's a redeeming God. The people of God land with him on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives splits in two, and a highway is created. He marches with his army to Megiddo. He lays waste of the enemies of the kingdom, and Jesus sets up his throne, and we reign with him for a thousand years. Feast of Trumpets. So here's the takeaway. It's not enough just to know the information. Here's the takeaway. Here's how we personalize this. Beloved, there is a time of trial coming on the earth. And during that time, there will be many great deceptions. Jesus said, if it were possible, it could even deceive the elect. There are going to be many great delusions, and we see that in our world today. There are many philosophies and points of view and customs all throughout the church that seems to justify sin and justify things God specifically has said that is not my will. But it's justified in our culture today, and many Christians are following suit in supporting those things. There are great deceptions that will be in the last days. There's a world system that is going to be instituted, and all who submit to it will be destroyed in the judgment. But all who reject it before Jesus comes are going to be persecuted. I mean, think about what we've experienced over the last year. You couldn't walk into Walmart without a mask on. Now they're even instituting, in some places, a a vaccine passport. You can't get on a plane. You can't travel over uh, country lines or borders without a vaccine passport. The mindset is being ingrained in the world today for the coming system of the Antichrist that is going to control the world. If you don't take his mark, you will not be able to buy or sell. We're seeing it in our world today, the foundation for these philosophies. And beloved, religion won't cut it. Religious people won't cut it. It takes a true relationship with Jesus Christ to endure to the end. To endure the time of tribal. A life truly lived in the Spirit is going to make it. Religion won't cut it. It won't even come close. Romans 11, Paul After he talks about the fullness of the Gentiles, he says, don't become arrogant because if God cut Israel off the branch when they walked away and rejected him, he will cut you off too. The only way to stay connected to the branch is staying connected to Jesus. And it's not about what we can do in our own power and own strength. It's about what he accomplished for us on the cross. There's a a quote from a pastor long ago who said the greatest problem in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, but they deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Now, I'm a human. I have struggles. We all have stuff. But the greatest disservice that the spirit of religion has done in the church is convincing people that they are saved, giving them a false sense of security with God who are not saved, and convincing people who are saved that they're still lost, stifling their ability to live free from condemnation and fulfill their true purpose in Christ Jesus. 
Either he's convinced you in your own pride, arrogance, and self-righteousness that there's nothing else you need to do. You've got it all together. You know all the verses. You, you, you've come to all the events. You're on the membership roll. You give the 10% every week. You've got your ducks in a row. There's nothing more that you need to do. He's got you convinced that your religion's going to save you. I'm sorry. It's not. It's not religion. It's lifestyle. It's relationship with Jesus Christ. It's intimacy with the Holy Spirit. But then there's some of you that you have a relationship with Christ, but he's made you look at these people who are convinced they're going to heaven and are not, and they're like, I'm not like them. I must not be good enough. I can't do what they can do and all these things. And you're under so much guilt and condemnation when the word of God says there is no guilt in Christ Jesus, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because he bore that on the cross. And religion has got you so convinced you're not good enough for the king when he died for you to set you free stifling your ability to be who God has made you to be. And the last days aren't coming. We've been in the last days since Jesus went to heaven, but they're closer now than they've ever been before. The time when the trumpets are going to begin to sound, the day Christ is going to return, and he's offering us right now a glimpse of the kingdom to come, which is why he's poured out his spirit on the church as a foretaste of future glory, that we would get a taste in the world today of the kingdom to come. And God is giving the world today time to repent, to turn to Christ. And he's waiting on those who will take that step because he has the greatest gift he can give to us. And that's not just a relationship with Christ, but a living, powerful relationship through the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit he gives willingly to all who ask him. It's in the Spirit that we have life, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. If you're buried under guilt and shame, you need a life encounter with the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit of God that breaks you free to allow you to begin to live in who you are in Christ in the world. Our hope and our salvation is the return of Christ. We speed up His return with every person who begins a relationship with God. But we'll, what will help us succeed where previous generations have failed is the anointing presence and power of the Holy Spirit of God, not more religion, not more classes, not more facts and figures. You see, someone asked me this week, or last week when I was at a pastor's meeting, as I was sharing my story about how I grew up not believing in the presence of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, the way God uh, works today. That was, that was, that, that's not how he works today. It was all for the past, for the days of the apostles and, and all that. And they asked me, what happened? What changed? And the only thing I could tell them is I went from an intellectual faith to a faith I could experience. I went from knowing the facts and figures to actually beginning to walk in the reality of that faith. And I recognized I had a lot of religious tendencies, a lot of religious beliefs in my life that were getting in the way because I thought I had all my ducks in a row. But when I came to the realization how I was actually miserably broken and I needed Jesus, that's when God encountered me. When I encountered the Holy Spirit. Maybe you're here today and you've been struggling in your relationship with God and you're like, no matter what I do, I just can't seem to overcome. I can't seem to break through. Beloved, you need an encounter with the Holy Spirit of God. You need to be filled and baptized with the Spirit. And maybe to get there, you first need to really give God your heart. 
by trusting Jesus today. So today, as we examine ourselves, who do you need to forgive in your heart so that God can let his love for that person flow through you? See, religion says they did me wrong. I don't, I don't have to love them. God says, no, you forgive everyone the way I, through Christ, has forgiven you. You can hold on to your religion, but it gets hot in the end. Or you can give Jesus your heart and find the peace that passes all understanding. Who do you need to forgive? See, 1 John 2.9 says, If anyone claims I'm living in the light but hates his fellow brother, that person is still living in darkness. 1 John 3.15 says, Anyone who hates another brother or sister is really a murderer at heart. You know that murderers don't have eternal life within them. Beloved, there's an epidemic in the body of Christ, and I believe religion is the source of this, where we may not say we hate one another, but we treat each other like we hate each other. We gossip about each other. We talk bad about each other. We don't associate because you're weird, and I don't like weird. I'm uncomfortable with this and that. We treat each other like we hate each other when God said, love one another. And your love for one another will prove that you're my disciple. What has religion convinced you of in your life that's getting in the way of what God wants to do? How can we expect to love the world to Jesus? I really feel like this is on my heart. How can we expect to love the world to Jesus if we're too busy hating them into hell? And more importantly than that, how can we love Jesus if we're too busy hating the people he loves? He died for the whole world. See, we can't. The spirit of religion wants us to excuse our attitudes and behaviors that stifle God's love and power in our lives when God simply wants us to surrender those attitudes so he can fill us with his spirit and his life can be demonstrated through our lives. So the invitation to the religious today is to let go of your religion, your religious excuses and expectations, and embrace a raw and real relationship with Jesus Christ. One that recognizes he still loves you, flaws and all. Just as you are. Humble yourself at his cross, recognizing you're not guiltless. And if he's forgiven you, who are you to withhold forgiveness from other people? Whatever we've been ignoring, the Feast of Trumpets reminds us that the reckoning is coming. And we need to prepare our hearts for his return. So those who've been pretending to have a relationship with God will have a rude awakening. Last scripture I want to leave you with, and this is so important because I resonate with this. I was in church my whole life, was even in ministry when I had to have a rude awakening with struggles in my own life. In Matthew 7, 21 through 23, here's what Jesus says about the last day, the day of judgment. He says, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God. Only those who actually do the will of my Father will enter. What, what's that say? He says, they say, Lord, Lord. That means they're assuming they have a relationship with God. They're assuming it. Lord, Lord. 
But he says, not everyone who calls me Lord will enter the kingdom of God. On judgment day, many will say to me, we, didn't we prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and perform many miracles in your name? We did all these great things in your name, Lord. If you looked at my life, you'd say, that's one of the most spiritual people you'd ever know. But what's he say? He says, but I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws, you lawless ones. What he's trying to tell us, beloved, is that it's not about what you do. That's religion. It's about who you know and who knows you. It's about relationship. And you can't have a relationship with Jesus if you withhold your heart. He wants your heart. And when you give it to him, it's then he can transform your life. Let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes as we go into a time of response. Again, now is the time to respond to the Lord. We're going to open the altar for prayer. And I just want to know who's going to be brave enough to respond to the Lord. To say, I don't care what people think. I'm going forward and I'm going to kneel down on those chairs and I'm going to call out to God. I'm going to spend time with God and I'm going to prepare my heart because there are things in my heart that I've withheld. There are things in my life that I, have, that I have put in his place. As we examine ourselves, ask yourself, what is in your life? Who do you need to forgive? What do you need to start doing? Who do you need to tell about Jesus? What do you need to confess to your brother and sister in Christ? And have, it, have you really asked yourself truly, have I truly given my heart and life to Jesus? And then respond to whatever the answer is. And maybe you're here and you're hungry for more of the Lord. You've been walking with Jesus and you're hungry, but you've not had an encounter with His Spirit. And you want to come forward because you want more of His Spirit. We'll be down here to pray with you. But for the next few moments, as Tony leads us in that worship, you respond, you come forward. You can pray alone or you can ask us to pray with you. We're here for you as we seek what God is saying and doing. Holy Spirit, we just give you this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that you're not here to condemn, but you're here to set us free. You're here to break off every weight, every sin that strips us down and slows us down, every weight that besets us so that we can fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, that we can be filled with your life and your spirit to accomplish the things that you've set aside for us to do before the foundation of the world. So you can break off the chains of heaviness, the garment of heaviness, the spirit of heaviness, and replace it with a garment of praise. God, I just believe that today there's many who have been struggling with the spirit of religion who's made them think badly about themselves. They feel guilty all the time. They're condemned. They don't think they could ever do anything for the Lord. Their faith is stifled because their value is based on what they can do, religion, and not who you are, relationship. And God, I just pray they receive that revelation today, that they would actually sense in this moment that you not only love them, but you like them. That you're happy for them, that you're proud of them. As a father is proud to watch their, their son ride their bike for the first time or their daughter ride their bike for the first time. As, as we step out in faith, God, you rejoice over us with songs of joy. 
And though the coming days will be hard, we don't have to fear anything in life because of the life of Christ crucified in us. That it's our blessed hope. You're not coming to judge us. You're coming to save us from the world that's already under judgment. And right now, if we align our hearts with you, we have that opportunity to help you accomplish your mission to bring the fullness of the Gentiles in so that you can return to your kingdom on the earth. So God, I just, I ask you, Holy Spirit, draw them. Don't let religion keep them in their seats. Don't let religion keep their hearts hard. Breakthrough, oh God of breakthrough. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together. As the Lord is speaking to your heart, you respond as we give this time to the Lord.
we thank you for being with us today. We thank you, God, that there is hope in the name of Jesus, that he is victorious, that all power and authority has been given to him, and we are yours. Lord, I pray, God, that that truth would resonate deep in our souls. God, that we'd put you first in each and every day, that we would hear your voice more clearly, God, that we would discern your presence. We would discern your will for our lives. You give us wisdom. But also, God, that you would put somebody on our heart that needs to know Jesus as their Savior. And I pray, God, that you would set up divine appointments. Even now, God, be setting up divine appointments for us to be able to share what he has done in our lives so they, too, can place their faith and trust in Christ. God, make us a soul-winning church. Give us the gift of evangelism, that we wouldn't be content with letting the people in our lives just go on without the hope of Christ. God, give us that fire, just as we sang that song before, that fire that burns. Let that fire continue to burn until the whole world hears, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, until Jesus is sitting on his throne. Don't let apathy overwhelm us. Don't let discouragement distract us. Pour out your spirit anew on us again today, God. Again, Lord, I just sense the person that's 
battling their value in this moment, the Lord would say, look to the cross because the one who died for you, the one who paid for you gets to determine your value. And he gave his life. He gave it all. You're worth everything. And if God would bankrupt heaven for you, what is there in this world that he wouldn't give you? God wants to give you the desires of your heart, beloved, but you have to, you have to rejoice in the Lord. You have to delight yourself in the Lord. Lord, I pray that you teach them to delight in you again, that you lift their head, strengthen their knees, encourage their soul. God, that they would encounter you afresh this week. Give them visions and dreams, Lord. Give them uh, an encounter that's undeniable that fans in the flame, that fire that burns for you, Lord God. We just surrender to you again today. And we thank you for the cross. From all of us at Vertical Life Church, we want to say thank you for listening. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to www.blchurch.tv forward slash give. Thank you, and God bless.